Thank you, Ron. <clears throat> if you notice on the board here this morning, I've uh, got an outline of the Old Testament tabernacle. And uh, I want to give you the setting before we uh, talk specifically about this. You remember it's two months since they've come through uh, the Red Sea, and now they're at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel. And remember, God had told them to consecrate themselves. He's going to speak to them. And so here they are. They're at the base of the mountain. And, and God is, God's presence is being evident to them, the thunder and the lightning, the cloud, and they're frightened. And they've told Moses, you know, don't, we don't want to speak to God personally. You know, we, we're, and, and so God is, wants to reveal himself to them. And so he gave, if you remember, he's given them the law. He gave them the, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He gave civil law that we looked at last week. Uh, and Moses had written it down. And so now he gives Moses the instructions for this wilderness tabernacle. And I want to start with a summary first. Now, why? Why is God doing this? Because he doesn't want to be up on the mountain and them be frightened. He wants, the, he wants his people to know. Now, we're talking about Old Testament, so we're talking about Israel. He wants his people to know that he is with them. He wants to dwell with them. And he can't do it if he's up on the mountain and they're frightened. He, he wants them to understand that he is their, not only their God, but he is their provider, he's their savior, he is the forgiver of their sin. And so he establishes the tabernacle as a place for the central place of worship where they can come and sacrifice and their sins be forgiven and that they would know that God is with them. Now think for a moment. They're going to travel through the wilderness. They don't know they're going to travel for 40 years through the wilderness, but God's going to, he, he, he designed this to be portable, and every time when God tells them to move, and he does that by uh, the, the cloud of his presence that over the tabernacle, and when it moves, they pack up and they move. And so God wants them to know, I am with you. And whatever battles you fight, I'm going to be with you. Whatever struggles you find, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell with you. The good news for us is, and we come to the New Testament, all this is a, a sim- symbolic of Christ coming and Him being our Savior. And today, He is with us. The, Jesus Christ is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, we who know Christ. And so he's with us. He's with us in the trials of our life. He's with us uh, when we sin. He's with us when we ask for forgiveness. He is with us uh, as we struggle with the issues of a sin-cursed world in a sin-cursed body. And whether it's our sin or someone else's sin or just the fact that the, the, the whole creation groans and travails under the curse of sin. God is with us. He has not forsaken us. Uh, and I, I try to remember that when I'm facing trial. I hope you remember that as well when you're facing trial. So now we're going to look at it very specifically and uh, very quickly. If you would, chapter 25 of uh, Exodus, and we read verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart. You shall take my offering. If you grew up in church, you've heard that used as an admonition for you to give willingly. <laughs> I think it applies. 
uh, verse 3. And this is the offering which you should take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine lemon, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, acacia wood. I'm a reader, and I don't pronounce things when I read, so sometimes I, I struggle with acacia wood. That wood is very common in Egypt, in Egypt very common in the desert. Uh, they say it's harder than oak. Uh, insects would never uh, penetrate this wood. And so he's, he's asking for these things to construct the, the tabernacle. And so every piece of furniture here, every, everything, every, every wall has some significance, spiritual significance, and you could go on the internet and you could you could buy books that talk about the tabernacle, whole whole books. And so it's very hard for us to cover it all this morning. All the symbolism and uh, a lot of it's identified in the New Testament. If we took the time this morning, we'd go to Hebrews chapter nine and we would read that all of this is preparation for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come one day, and he is going to offer up his blood. Uh, I want to get ahead of myself. Let, let me just let me just tell you what happens. Once it's established, the, the people would come inside the court. This is the court. It's about a, it, and your Bible is given in cubits, so we don't do cubits. So it's about a, it's about 150 foot the outer court, long about 75 foot wide. Uh, this is the holy of holies. It's 15 by 15. Uh, it's one-third of the building, this, the outer court, this is the holy place, it's 30 by 30, and so people would come, and this is the altar, they would offer their, their they would give their sacrifices to the priest, the priest would kill them, uh, and that would take place out of here, the priest would kill them, put the meat on the offering, and uh, this is the laver, the, where it's a, it's a basin where the priest would wash themselves, and uh, preparation for doing it, and after they've done the sacrifices, the people would be given back the meat on some offerings. Some offerings would be burned completely. Sometimes it would just uh, they'd, they'd be given back the meat. They would go outside uh, and then celebrate with their family and eat the meat and have have a little feast. Sometimes it'd be burnt completely, depending on the offering they're giving. Uh, once a year, the high priest, who's going, the first one's going to be Aaron. So once a year, the high priest would, would take blood of an offering and he would go inside this veil and offer it on the, the mercy seat, which is the seat on top of an ark. This is a box about three foot long, about two foot high, uh, about two foot wide, and it has cherubim, cherubim, these uh, creatures that are to honor God, and they would be facing each other, and their wings would be up over and, and meeting together over the top of the box. And God had said to them that that's where my presence will meet with you. So his presence, now God's not limited to that. When, when God's presence is there uh, on the mercy seat of the ark, he, he's not limited to that, but that's where he promised to meet with the nation of Israel, the representative of the nation of Israel, which would be the high priest. So what would happen, this mercy seat, the mercy seat is the, is the golden cover of the box, of the ark. The ark is a box. 
And inside the box is the tablets of stone, or is going, is going to be, and uh, the pots of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. So all that's going to be inside the box at some point in time. But the mercy seat's on top of that, and the high priest alone would go under this curtain. This is a curtain, uh, and he'd go under the curtain, and he'd sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it's called propitiation. The mercy seat itself, the word for mercy seat means that. It means the absolution, the propitiation. So it would, it would be that once a year, when the high priest comes in and he offers that blood, the sins nationally of the nation of Israel would be rolled forward. They wouldn't be held accountable. So the people wouldn't be held accountable for their national sin and their individual sin. Their individual sin is dealt with with individual offerings throughout the year at feast times. But, but nationally, God's not going to destroy the nation of Israel because of this once a year propitiation. And what it is, is that, think, think with me, Wood, the law is inside this box. And the people can't keep it. I can't keep it. You can't keep it. The nation of Israel couldn't keep it. They promised they would. They said, yes, all the words you said, we will do. But they couldn't. Now, why couldn't they? Because they were sinners. They had a sin nature. Uh, I couldn't keep the law. You can't keep the law. Uh, We have a sin nature. Now, I might keep some of it. You might keep some of it. But we learned in the New Testament, if 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 you break one fast of the law, you're a lawbreaker. And so you're, you're guilty of the law. When the blood is put on there, then that's propitiated. That national guilt and individual guilt is propitiated. It's roll forward. You think roll forward till when? Roll forward until we read in Hebrews chapter 9 that Christ comes, Jesus comes, and he is the final propitiation uh, once for all. His blood pays it once for all. So, here, if this is the cross, this is the cross in history, and history flowing this way. And when we're we're looking forward to the cross, we're looking forward, even though we don't understand it. We're the nation of Israel; we don't understand it. We're the people who hear Israel talk; we don't understand it. But we we understand that they believe that one day those sins will be paid for. But today they're propitiated. And one day they'll be paid for. Okay, we are on the other side. We know about the cross. We're looking back at the cross and we're saying they were propitiated by the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate sacrifice and there's no need for it after that. The people of Israel didn't get that. And so <clears throat> within uh, a generation or so after Christ died, uh, he and his sovereignty destroyed the temple. And, and they have never had sacrificial worship since then, unless it's been very few, very uh, sects have done that, uh, and they've done it uh, in, in hiding, and they can't do it publicly. Uh, today, when the Jews, uh, they, they do the uh, Passover, and they celebrate the feast, and they celebrate the Sabbath day, but they don't sacrifice. And so they're, they're not fully, they're... And when I've read about so what do they believe is happening to their sin, they just justify it by basically what everybody else does. They change the Bible. They change, they change what the scriptures say to justify their practice of the day. So this is, this is the purpose 
what they're talking about. God wants to dwell with his people. Now, I don't know about you. That encourages me. God wants to dwell with me. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. But he, in his mercy and in his grace and in his sovereignty, has made a way. And that's what he's telling these people. So, um, okay, I'm so far off my notes already that I'm just going to talk. I'm just going to talk to you. I can't read them and go over and talk to you anyway. You know, and so here in these three chapters, here's the instruction for building the tabernacle. It starts with the ark. Now, if I were going to tell you to build a tabernacle, I would start with the land. I would tell you how much land to get. I would tell you how to fence it in. I would tell you how to build the structure, and finally, when that's all done, I would tell you to put the furniture in it. But God starts with theology. He he starts with what's most important. He starts with grace, and then he works to the practicality. And he does that in our lives. Um, Think about salvation. When I got saved... I, I didn't understand theology, I didn't know theology, I didn't, I didn't understand uh, propitiation of sin, I didn't, I didn't understand justification, sanctification, I didn't understand anything. I understood that I needed a Savior, okay? And God brought me to that place. He started with grace, and then he began to deal with the practicality of living in grace and living in faith toward him. Here's, here's what he does. He starts with the ark, and he, ha- he gives Moses the dimensions and the structure of the ark. But this is where he will be. And he moves out from there and does the furniture. This is the, uh, I don't know the Jewish name, it's the, uh, English, it's the candlestick, it's memorial, memorial, something like that. And this is the table for showbread. Uh, there'd be 12 loaves of bread baked here a special way with fine flour. They'd be laid out on that. And so what's happening there? Uh, the, the memorial is, is what gave the light. This, this structure, we read about the skins. Okay, I'm going I'm to give you just a, I'm going to give you a, okay, if this is the ground level, then this structure is going to be, uh, probably about 15 foot tall, and uh, it's going to be covered with with fine linen. So now we're looking at the front of it, okay? And it's open. There's no there's no there's no doorway on the front. We're looking at the front of it, and it's going to be covered with fine linen. Now remember, they're in the desert. Uh, they dwe- they're dwelling in tents if, if they have tents. It's going to be covered with fine linen. And then it's going to be over that is going to be a covering of uh, goat's hair. And then there's going to be a covering of ram skin dyed red. One writer said Moroccan leather. Okay, so think about that. So all the hairs off the off the ram skin off the ram skin, huh? Okay, off the hide. So all the hairs off that, and so it's covered. And then the badger skin. Okay, and probably this goes down to the ground. You know what? If you're interested, go on the internet and just pull up the ark, and you'll get you'll get 500 illustrations of what are the, I mean the tabernacle, what it looks like, and everything. But basically, this is it. Badger skin. There were no badgers uh, that we know as badgers 
in that area. Uh, there's a little confusion about what the, what the Hebrew word meant. And they said probably it was uh, the skins they brought with them from sea cows. Uh, sea cows, would, um, there's some down in the Florida area, I think, and they're endangered species today. But there would be a waterproofing. So this would be a waterproofing over the tent. And the covering at the front would be a, a, a curtain, a woven curtain. So now there's a, so you're looking at it, there's a, there's a curtain. Now think about when you move, when you, when you move from the theology to the practical, the metals and, and things, everything in this room, the, the boards that are standing up are covered in solid gold. And, and this, and this holy of holies, uh, covered in solid gold, and and then as you move out, this the the, the mercy seat solid gold, uh, the the ark itself is wood uh, covered in gold, and so everything's golden there. And now you, you you that's the presence of God. This is a woven curtain, and some people say that it, it probably is like four fingers thick that no one could see through it. Uh, and so uh, you move then into this area, and this candlestick is gold, this is covered by gold. But now when you get to the walls, the, the walls were not, because it has to be portable, they were also Acadia boards standing up with, on silver sockets. So gold speaks of purity, silver speaks of redemption, and so now they're standing up, and now they're covered with the curtains. And uh, when, when you looked at the outside, you would just see the outside skins. And it's not real impressive. It wouldn't be threatening to you. Uh, but then as you move inside, this linen curtain has, has a blue, be a blue tint, which is, uh, speaks of the, the glory of God. And so it would be very, very impressive even though people weren't going to see it. You know, they're not going to see it. Christ lives in me, and the only way people see it is through my behavior. They don't see it in my, in my being. I don't look like Christ. You don't look like Christ. So they don't see it in us except through our response to them and, and our, our love for them and our, our care for them. So when you're, when you're looking at this, it's not too impressive. But the people would know when Christ's presence would dwell over this tent, I mean the Holy Spirit would presently dwell up in the air over this tent, and the people would know that God's with us. Here he's here. He's, he's accessible to the priesthood. And, and he's accessible to us through the priesthood. And so the priest would go through, and that's going to be the rest of the book of Exodus. The priest would go through this, they would be uh, uh, consecrated, and they would go through this process before they would offer sacrifices. They would have to uh, cleanse themselves, and they'd be prepared to offer sacrifices. And so this would be a busy area. This would be a bloody area. It's a bloody religion. Christ's death was a bloody death. He shed his blood for us. <clears throat> a lot of people don't like that. They don't they don't think, why would God kill his son? And, you know, why? That, that just not, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, the truth is, it doesn't make sense. But it has given to us 
uh, as a propitiation for our sin. It doesn't make sense to us. We, we believe it by faith. We believe it because the Bible teaches we believe it by faith. <clears throat> so let's go back. Let's go back again. Twelve loaves of bread. Christ is the bread of life. Okay, he's going to tell us that. He is the bread of life. Not just the matter that comes down from heaven, but he is the bread of life. This is what gave light. When this is covered like this, there was no light in that, and this is the only thing that gave light inside, inside that temple. This would be a curtain, this would be a curtain, and this is the light, and this, this was lit and kept lit for all day, every day, uh, in, and as long as that 400 years this tabernacle lasted, and it was kept lit. And so it's the light Christ said himself. I, he's the light of the world. He is the light. So it's really interesting. Uh, when this was taller than the fence, the fence was also a draped curtain. About, about every, every five, there'd be a, there'd be a post, and these posts were on silver sockets, and they were Acadia wood. And if, if you could see them there, and that, that's what held this fence up. And the fence would be about, uh, I don't know exactly, eight, eight or nine, ten foot tall, something like that. But the structure itself, the, the actual holy place, was taller than that. People could see it. And even, bef- even before they came inside the court, they could see it. And they knew that God dwelt in their presence. Now here's another interesting thing. We're probably not going to cover at some point in time, but let, let me use another space. I'm just going to say that here is the tabernacle, and when God told them, he told them by tribe how to camp around the tabernacle. This is the center of their camp. And so he, he put tribes to camp here on this side. He put tribes to camp here on this side, here on this side, and here on this side, and we're looking north, okay? We're looking north, and so he instructed them to do it. And if you count up the numbers of the people in the tribe, which is given to us, if you count the numbers, what you're going to find is that there were a considerable amount of people here, less here, less here, and less here. And if you were looking at it from a bird's eye view, it would be what? A cross. It would, it would be a cross. Now, that's just kind of interesting. Was it true? Well, the numbers say it's true, you know, because people have to have a certain amount of space to camp, and so the numbers would say it's true. Now, was, was it kind of, um, you know, it, it depends on how many people you have there. All, all, all of these were not, maybe weren't empty spaces. They might have been full as well. I, I really don't know. But God has order. He's, he's a God of order. He's a God of purpose. And he, he orders all of life. Okay. The altar has horns on it. Now, I'm not, no, I'm not sure exactly what a horn is, but it's, it, it's right. We know what a horn of a cow is. So it's raised over the corners. And it would be where um, they could tie the animal. This altar is about probably four and a half foot high. It's made of bronze. The laver's made of bronze. Okay, so you, you move out, silver's redemption, bronze is judgment. Okay, so you have judgment, redemption, 
holiness. That's us. We face judgment. There's redemption. Uh, the redemption is the silver, all that holds up the holiness of God. So what they would do is that about halfway down this altar would be a grate. So this would be like, I hate to use the terminology, this would be like your barbecue pit. So now there's a grate, now there's sides. The animals would be burned on that, and there's instructions for what you catch the blood in when they kill the animal, <clears throat> what the shovels are made, uh, fire pans were made to, to, to do the practical work. When the temple is going to be built, some 400 years after this, then the temple itself is going to have, in this outer court, it's going to have rooms built all around and storage. All of this was portable. In, in the remaining part of Exodus, God's going to delineate, or numbers, I'm not sure, I haven't read that far, but he's going to delineate <clears throat> who's to carry what. Now, the Levites are the tribe of the priesthood. And so some of them are going to carry this. <clears throat> some of them are going to be responsible. All of them, I guess, are going to be responsible for doing this. The ark itself would have rings on the outside and two pole, Acadia poles, so it would be carried by two bearers. Uh, it wouldn't be put on carts. All of the fencing, all of the walls would be taken down, loaded into carts, and uh, probably carried by oxen or, or drug by men. The altar, the, the table of showbread had poles. Uh, the altar had poles to carry it. The lever doesn't, doesn't mention the lever. So it's really interesting. God's saying that when we move, this is how I want it packed. This is how I want it packed. This is how I want it transported. And the first thing they would do, they would set up the tent in the, of the of the holy, holy, this is the, this is the, the most holy, and this is the holy place. So they set up the tent of the most holy, the holy place. You remember the story when you move into um, the history of Israel and the history books, and you get into, I, I can't remember, Samuel or, or First Kings, and uh, you get to the reign of David, and you remember the ark had been captured by the Philistines, and because... Uh, Samuel's sons had taken it into battle and the Philistines had captured it. So when David comes on the scene, he's going to bring it back. The Philistines sent it back to Israel because God cursed them while it was in their land. And so, interesting story. And so they recognized this is the curse of the God of Israel, so let's get rid of it. Instead of destroying it, they, they sent it back to Israel. And so now it's at a farmer's house, and I'd say that, or a a herder's house, and it stays there through the reign of Saul. Now, David wants to bring it back. So David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. And so he goes and gets it. And remember, they put the ark on a cart, and it goes along, it's bumping, and one of the, one of the, one of the guys reaches out to steady it, and God kills him. And you think, well, that doesn't seem fair. That, that doesn't seem right. Uh, but we have a low view of God's holiness. I have a low view of God's holiness. I, I, I have a low view of my sin also. You understand that? And, <clears throat> but God has a very high view of my sin and a very high view of his holiness. <clears throat> this, is the representative, this is the representative of God's presence. And God's saying, 
when you approach me, you're going to do it my way. You're not going to do it casually. You're not going to do it haphazardly. You're going to do it my way. And when you do, I bless you. I am God. You know, and if I'm in my pride, and Bill spoke of pride, if I'm, if I'm prideful, I'm not going to like that. I'm going to say, well, you're God and I'll bargain with you. You're, you're God and I'll do these things and then you, have, you owe me blessing because I'm doing these things. And it's just not true. You don't bargain with God. Uh, you can't bargain with God. You humble yourself before God. You humble yourself and say, you're God and I'm your servant. I am your slave. I, I serve at your pleasure. And you mean it from your heart. And that's worship. And that's where worship starts. And, and so um, that's what happens when these people, you, you come and you bring an animal. And you think, how, how, can this, how can the blood of this animal and the carcass of this animal make me pure before God? And the only way it's symbolic. The only way it is is that God said that the life is in the blood. And then he said, and there is no redemption without the shedding of blood. And so there's no forgiveness. Let me use the word forgiveness in place of redemption. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. It wasn't for Israel, and there isn't for us. Our sin deserves death. It deserves not only physical death, it deserves eternal death. Eternal death of the soul, eternal punishment of the soul and the body. Uh, but Christ's blood pays that penalty. You know, it's really, in the end, it's pretty simple. Theology is pretty simple. Uh, God made a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed and, 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 and have an association with him. But it's his way, not our way. And our whole world today, and most of religion, is making it their way. They're making it their way. And I'm tempted to. I'm tempted to think that if I, if I behave and I live and I'm pious and I give and I do good deeds for someone, then I'm safe. I'm safe from the curse of sin. Not just going to hell. I'm not talking about going to hell. I'm talking about living daily life. I, my, I won't have flats on my car, Jeff. I, I, I won't have, uh, you know, the, I, a guy was showing me the film this morning. We were waiting for the practice for the surgery. Georgia, they had, a, they had a slab leak, and we've had slab leaks, and it's a nightmare, and, you know, when that's going on. And, you know, so it's all those things. You, you get sickness. You get, and, and somehow we have the idea. It's our, it's our sinful nature to think, if, I, if, if I'm doing things right, those things won't happen to me or my family. And it's not true. It's not true. What, what is true and what this symbolizes is that God has made a way eternally for us to dwell in his presence. Today, he's made a way for us today in the midst of our trial to dwell in his presence. He, dwell, he wants to dwell with us, but it's on his terms. It's on his terms. 
And if we remember that and humble ourselves, we have to humble ourselves, then, then it works. So, you know what I'm going to do? Let's go to, let's go to, um, I, I don't ever do this because I can't hear you, but anybody have a question? Anybody want to ask a question? This was going to last for 400 years, and and when the ark is captured, I'm not sure what happened to the rest of the tabernacle during that time, uh, but there's a period about 80 years, you know, or 40, 50 years until David comes on the scene, because Saul reigned for 40 years. So I'm not sure what happened to the tabernacle itself, and when David brought the ark back, I don't know if the tabernacle was still there, whether they reconstructed it, so now they have... Now they have the tabernacle. But when, when Solomon built the temple, um, then the temple is where the Holy of Holies, this is going to be exactly the same. The temple's going to be a little different. The temple structure is going to be a little different. But the Holy of Holies and the holy place is going to be exactly the same. Um, some, some years ago, there was a traveling group who brought a portable tabernacle and set it up outside of town, and you could go through it. Any of you do that? Okay, Lucy, you did that? Y'all did that? Yeah. Was it pretty impressive? Yeah. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, Hebrews chapter 9. Let's just read that very quickly, and then we'll be dismissed, have a little time before church. The first part, the first paragraph deals with the, with the instruments in the, in the tabernacle. Uh, then verse 6, read this. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered, but we would say with blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, what's the holiest of all? All of these things are a pattern of what's in heaven. The holiest of all, where God dwells. The holiest of all. So these things are a pattern. Moses was given the pattern of what's in heaven. So now, when we read that verse 8, that the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is not heaven. This is not God's, this is where God came to meet with them. But it's not the final thing. That's where we go, and I point up because we assume heaven's up, but that, that's where God, and we're going to um, meet with, with Christ um, and dwell in the presence of God. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience so when you came and offered a sacrifice uh, as a Jew, it doesn't make you perfect regarding the conscience. You knew you were a sinner. You knew you were still accountable for your sin, but you knew you weren't accountable today. You weren't going to be, you weren't going to be punished, punished today. It says, 
concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. That's when Christ is going to come. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a perfect and more, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, nor with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So after Christ died, he entered in the presence of God, and with his, now, did he go, a priest would go in here with a basin of blood. Did Christ do that? Did, did, did Christ, or is, is, the, is the terminology just that Christ did this in the presence of God on our behalf, on the world's behalf, and it, did he actually, actually take blood into God's presence? I don't think he had to because he is God. Uh, I personally don't think he had to. I think what this is meaning is that his sacrifice did that. His sacrifice is the offering of the blood, his blood before God. So, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, here's the interesting thing. I know I'm a sinner. I know I sin. My family can say amen to that. I, I know I sin. I try to behave at church so you may not see it. But I know I'm a sinner. But, and I know that even before I came to Christ, I was 25 years old, but before I came to Christ, I did some, not, not horrendous thing, not what you did, but I did some bad things. <laughs> and, 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 you know, but I have a clear conscience today. You know why? Because Christ has forgiven me. Not because I'm any more worthy today than I was the day I got saved, because I understand biblically He has forgiven me. He's cleansed me. I'm willing to say I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it, but He forgave me. And if He forgave me, I have a clear conscience today. So now that doesn't take care of my sin today. I have to confess that. So whatever sin I sin today, I, I have to confess. But we live with a clear conscience. Isn't that a great thing to live with a clear conscience uh, regarding the past? Okay, this pops in my mind. I'm a dreamer. Are y'all dreamers? Do y'all dream? My dreams are never happy. My, my dreams are always stressful. My, my dreams are about what I did in the past. And, you know, and I, I wake up in a sweat. And uh, you think, well, you do have a guilty conscience. I don't know what, I don't know what's happened. But I tell myself when I wake up, this is just a dream. I belong to Christ. I'm forgiven. That's in the past. Let it go. And I go back to sleep. But I preach to myself and I, because I, that's what I believe. I wish I had sweet dreams, though. So. Okay, verse 15, for this is the reason he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I hope you understand that the main point today is Christ wanted, God wanted to dwell. Christ wanted to dwell. He's the rock that followed him. 
He wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted them to know, I am with you. I am for you. I am present. You can enter my presence with an offering. I will hear your prayers. I will forgive you. And it's symbolic of today that we we need to learn the same thing. So this morning, what I want you to remember is that Christ is with you. He is for you. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to uh, approve anything you do and everything you do, but, but he's going to forgive you, and he's going to draw you back to himself, and he is going to give you comfort and grace, and he, he's going to help you uh, through the issues of life with grace. Uh, I, I'm very careful when I pray for people who are sick or injured or dying. Uh, God hadn't promised us health. He hadn't promised us uh, security in the world. He hadn't promised us any of those things. He has promised us grace. He gives us grace as we go through those things. And that's what we need to remember, and that's what gives us hope. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us this illustration in Exodus about Christ's love for us. I pray you would help us that we, Lord, would be aware of your love for us, your presence in our lives. I pray this morning, especially as we go from this lesson and we partake of the communion, Lord, that we would be conscious of your broken body and your shed blood. Lord, that our our mind would dwell on that, that you literally paid a very, very high price. Uh, You're mocked, you're beaten, uh, you were dismissed as being ignorant. And uh, Lord, you you suffered all those things willingly that we could be forgiven. And and Lord, might this morning, uh, especially as we remember that in communion, that our hearts would be broken and open toward you and you be exalted in our heart. And we'll thank you and praise you if you help us with that by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.